Hello, today we're speaking with Ellis Singer McHugh, CEO at Territory Foods. Welcome to Podcast Ellis. Hi, James. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. To start with, could you tell us a little bit about Territory Foods? Absolutely. So Territory Foods is a direct-to-consumer fresh food platform, and we connect thousands of customers every week with personalized nutrition in the form of individually prepared meals that's made through a distributed network of chefs and restaurants. So it's quite the mouthful, Um, and we have a very big job to do every week. But basically, if I was just boiling it down, we're empowering our customers to make the small changes in their health in the everyday to live a better life. And I suppose, how did the kind of territory get started? And were there any pivots along the way? Yes, many. I think all companies that are, you know, Series A into Series B companies, there's many pivots along the journey. Territory was originally founded very, very tightly connected to the world of fitness. And it was very much like a fitness food company. So I'm not the founder of the company. The company is founded by a gentleman named Patrick Smith and another gentleman named Robert Morton. Uh, Still very, very close. Founders are great humans. And they founded it in 2011. So we're a little bit older. And the company was founded out of this really beautiful organic need of the founders. They were doing CrossFit and there was all this new emergent understanding of this concept of clean eating. It was very, very connected to the world of paleo. Mark Sisson, John Durant, they were early believers in this space around you can change your body by cleaning your diet up. Clean meaning fresh fruits and vegetables, less reliance on grain, free of gluten, sugar, dairy, inflammatory items. And at that time in 2011, it was crazy hard. If you think about where we are right now from like a cultural perspective, if you go out to a restaurant and you say, oh, do you have a gluten-free menu? People will say yes or no, but you won't be laughed out of the restaurant. But in 2011, that was really taboo almost. And this movement around clean eating was something that lived purely in people's kitchens. And so Patrick and Robert, as you know, the founders were essentially looking for an easy solution to reach their own goals. Patrick is a software engineer. And so he said, okay, I should be able to build some software that makes this easy for me. He went to Craigslist, which was the best source of of information at that time. And he said, I'm going to find a chef. And I'm going to find a paleo chef and see if I can build a little bit of a network. And so he did. He found a paleo chef. He said, will you make me fresh prepared meals every single week? And she said, yes, but not just for you. And so he went to his gym and he said, is anybody else interested in doing this with me? The first week, six people said yes. And then six became 10, became 20. And all of a sudden, as an entrepreneur, software engineer, Patrick was like, this is a great idea. Something's here. Yeah, (laughs) Something's here. And I think it's a magical story from like a business perspective because It's so rare to find a company and found a company with that perfect product market fit. And I think especially as you're going out and raising tranches of capital, we're a venture-backed company, as I'm sure many of your listeners are, where they're thinking about being, you know, that product market fit is one of the things that early investors are looking for. And to have that from the onset is like this incredible boon for territory. And then I think the other amazing thing about the the starting of the company was that because the founders leaned into their skill sets and said, what do I do? I make software. We never were like going to buy a kitchen. We never like, oh, let's vertically integrate this, like buy a bunch of kitchen space and optimize sourcing uh, a la a CPG company because it wasn't their skill set. And so as founders, they said, let us play to our skill sets. And let's build the thing that we know for the need that we've identified and that is intimate and close to us. And bonus that it was at a time from a market perspective where there was a big community coming around clean eating. There was growing awareness of it. So absolutely the right market conditions and a real moment to say, we have an innovative business model to serve this emerging customer in a way that no one else is doing. 
And that's the magic of the story. Since then, have there been pivots? Absolutely. But what I think is incredible about the founding story is that it is still the through line to what we do today. We're just doing it at scale. We're doing it for a much larger audience. We're doing it outside of like the close connection to like ultimate fitness. And we're doing it for a customer that's looking for a solution for their health, for their well-being that's very personalized to them. Meaning not necessarily personalization in like like tiny little biomarkers, although we are getting there, which I'm happy to talk right. about, but more about, you know, I think that low carb eating is the right way for me. And I try to be vegetarian 75% of the time, but on the weekends, I want to eat steak and shrimp. And I don't want to feel judged for that. And I want a healthy option that is anti-inflammatory that I can trust for all of those different use cases. Um, and I don't want to have to self-identify in like some profile that somebody has made for me. And so that's where I think as we've evolved as a company, the fact that we have this incredible supply model that is a distributed chef network empowers us to be personalized at scale for a customer base that otherwise is completely unserved. And so um, it's been a lot of ups and downs through the business. We had a physical distribution model for the first you know, six, seven years of the company where we were distributing product through a network of refrigerators and gyms. I will say that during COVID, that changed pretty dramatically. And those communities are still very important to us, but it made us rethink our relationship with the customer from a direct-to-consumer lens. It It made us think about how do we speak to this customer? What's the relationship we have with them? Who are the intermediaries in those relationships? And how do we access these customers at the moment where there's high trust, high engagement environment? And so it's been an incredible journey, but I would say that 2020 was definitely a catalyst year for our company. We raised the $22 million Series B. Congrats. Uh, thank you. Uh, not a small amount of funding and not a small voyage to raise it for sure. But coming through the global pandemic, I think there's incredible market forces around us in the rapid adoption of direct-to-consumer and the customer's awareness of healthy eating and new supply chain enablement that I'm just so excited about. So we have this massive bright future ahead, but really staying true to that original product market fit of the business and empowering that customer. Yeah, I think it's so interesting how different companies manage to, I suppose, solve the, the cold start problem in any marketplace, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the founders, like they had this relationship with the gym, they yep. found somebody on Craigslist and, you know, a lot of people try to build marketplaces and they're like, you know, it's like two question marks on the supply side and the demand side. And it's That's like, right. well, you, you need to ha- capture that in some way. And then, right. from, and, then, and then you can expand as you have into this direct consumer where you're owning that relationship for consumers, you know, who want clean eating, everything, you know, from the expectant mom to the, to the athlete and everything in between. Exactly. I love it. You explained it better than I do. This is amazing. <laughs> no worries at all. And so, you know, one of the attributes that I think are, you know, quite important the kind of territories uh, approach is this balance between, you know, health, wellness, uh, sustainability, the sustainability of, you know, both the people you work with from a, you know, the, yes. the various chefs and so on, as well as the sustainability of the food and the sourcing. And so could you speak to a little bit about how that process works? Yeah. Sustainability is the heartbeat of territory. And it's, amazing to me because we think about sustainability in many, many dimensions. And we think about it as community and what you're building. And uh, we have a very strong value system in the company about enriching the communities that we touch. So that can be the fitness communities. It can be our consumer communities. It can be like our local business communities. We operate through a distributed chef network, which means that we actually have a local footprint everywhere we work. There's actual people from the territory team in every single community. And that is a huge power for us because it keeps us connected. 
And the world is changing so rapidly that as we look at our business and how do we stay true to the mission and values to make the world better, to make our customers' lives better, but also make the world better, how do we tune our business and the, the way our business works towards that? So sustainability for us is super multifaceted. I think in any direct-to-consumer business, especially direct-to-consumer subscription businesses, the first place I go from sustainability is always to like carbon footprint because I think that's where a lot of the conversation has been. And I think that, you know, we, we do think about it at Territory for sure. And we do carbon offsets and all the really important things that I actually feel like that's becoming table stakes or it's table stakes for a company like us, let's say. It's right. not table stakes for everybody. But as we think about our corporate responsibility to the planet, to the health of the next generation, yes, it's simple things like purchasing carbon offsets. But actually from us, we think about it from the top down, the user experience. And we've actually said when we were designing packaging, which is kind of an unsexy thing to talk about, but if you ever worked in direct-to-consumer, ever worked in food, like lots of time in packaging, we said we want to build the most sustainable pack out possible. And what does that mean? And so we are currently working in a 100% compostable container. We use a compostable PLA plastic lid and compostable bowls. We have an incredible vendor that we're working with here. And then we have a 100% curbside recyclable pack out from a, a like a delivery box and like liner perspective and working with uh, Temper Pack on that. And they're incredible. They're an amazing company uh, that's leading in that space. And I'll tell you, if we were just a company that was focused on margin, there's a cheaper way to do it. Like sustainable materials Absolutely. are so expensive <laughs> compared to the, the cheap plastics of the world, but it's an investment that we've made and we don't ask the customer to pay for it. We actually did a lot of customer testing around you know, would they pay for it? The answer right. was no, because the customer cares, but not that much. And so for us, it was actually just like who we are. And we couldn't imagine operating in a way that didn't have this focus on sustainability on every single package. And then I think the other thing that's incredible about our business model that, you know, may not be obvious from the onset is that we operate in a zero waste environment. That means every dish that is made and ordered is actually pre ordered by a consumer which means that when our chefs are making that food, they're making to the exact amount that they know they need to do. So the unit economics of a restaurant are a disaster, which is like why you've seen 100,000 restaurants go out of business during the pandemic, and most of them won't come back. And, and TV shows about you know badly oh, run restaurants and everything in between. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, and that's just like safety things. The more that's, Those are the very important things. We're talking about like the dollars and cents of how do you make a restaurant run, right? And one of the biggest things that happens like is the load flow in a restaurant is everything's on like Friday and Saturday, essentially, right? It's you really are pushing towards Friday and Saturday. And what we do at territory is we give our chefs the information on how many orders are going to come through a week in advance. Okay. So what does that mean? It means they can optimize labor. It means they can optimize sourcing. And it means that they are only buying enough to make that product. And what that does is it shrinks out the the flex because in your normal restaurant business where it's a Friday, Saturday, if it rains and the majority of your seating is outdoors, all of a sudden you've procured all the raw goods and the labor for like load that doesn't happen. And so this is where I think like if you look at like macro level emergent trends in, in culinary, this is where open table actually changed the restaurant world because all of a sudden restaurants were able to reliably predict at scale when people were coming in. And so it's a very interesting thing because Open Deliverable came, it changed that a little bit, but you know, the restaurant margins are still not there to build like very sustainable businesses. And so what we do by being pre-order is it's better for the earth because it allows for the exact amount of food to be made. There's no food waste. And then it's better for the businesses as well. 
and it allows them to run a tighter margin business. And I think that's like the final piece of sustainability for me is sustainable economies. And it's about building partnerships that scale, partnerships that are dual-sided beneficial, because when we can drive dollars through our local economies, there's a lot more innovation that happens, um, a lot more richness in your community. It's a lot more equity building. And I think that's where we have to think about sustainability, not just in the world of, you know, are we thinking about sustainable agriculture, which is something we're thinking about a lot right now, but how do we actually build communities and community sustainability as well? Yeah, one of the, yeah, I was talking to a data scientist who's actively working on like food waste and food loss like problems right now. And yeah. he had this line that like literally I spoke to him last week and it's been like running around my head that like uncertainty is wasteful, right? Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, whether you're a farmer all the way up through to a restaurant and everything in between, you know, generally it's better to have a surplus that you end up throwing out than just yes. then your you know, buyer, like you don't have enough for their buyer because they'll go to it somewhere else, right? Yeah. And yeah. so even at the restaurant level, you know, like they, they just don't want to run out of food for that, Saturday, yes. that busy Saturday and that's, that's worse. That's exactly right. And so that's like baked into all these different systems. And so that's why, you know, once you start compounding 2% at this level and the next 2% and just waste all the way through the system, you end up with, you know, some of the stats around 30, 40% of all food is wasted. And that's crazy because there has to be a better way. I love our business because we're a pre-order business, so we mitigate that. There's a lot of interesting companies that have like popped up to try to fix that. Less on like the transactional like restaurant business, but like there's like a lot of cool companies trying to like help grocery stores with this as well. Because it's not just about like quick server, fast casual, or fine dining. It's actually about the whole food system. And so if we were able to redeploy some of that waste in a fashion so that it was consumed or was recycled, it's a it's a really powerful thing. So it's exciting to be at the helm of a business that's building towards this bigger world. Because I think one of the most amazing things that came out of 2020 was a sense of purpose around the business community that we have to fix this. This being global health, this being climate change, this being so many different things. And I think I've seen so many dollars flow towards mission-driven businesses that are building towards that better world. And it, it inspires me and it makes me passionate about what we're building as a community and gives me a lot of optimism for, you know, the next five, 10 years, of what's going to happen for the food system. And in terms of like onboarding, you know, those local chefs and yeah. like understanding how they source, like what, what is that process like? Yeah. So we work through a network of independent chefs and their independence is super important. They're culinary technicians and craftsmen. They work in their own space and they go through their own sourcing channels. This is a place for us where it's kind of a delicate line. We're always trying to say, you know, how much of this do we try to influence Uh, So generally, our chefs are sourcing through their own, the sourcing that they do for their restaurant. If we see a way to optimize for them, or if we build a relationship with them and we see consistently that they're not able to get like the same type of pricing that we would be expect, we're happy to make introductions, happy to help them with that. Um, But a lot of our chefs have the purveyors they love, and they built those relationships over the long run, and they know the quality of the product and are very passionate about, you know, that loyalty. And so I think What's interesting about that to me from a supply chain perspective for us is we are very passionate about innovative ingredients. And so we said, you know, what's the right supply chain for a new emergent product that a chef may not have access to through the purveyors or distributors that they already work with? And what's our role? And so we've dry run a couple of different tests. We work with a lot of like fun ingredients, funky ingredients. I mean, all the way from sprouted fermented things, forbidden rice noodles, all these like good stuff, like try sourcing forbidden rice noodles. You literally have to buy, buy them off of Amazon. Right. Like it's, 
It's not easy. And then I'm also working with emergency PG companies. So there's an incredible company called Right Rice. Uh, The founder, Keith Belling, is a incredible innovator in the food space. He's the founder of Pop Chips. And this is his kind of like second gig in this space. But he basically said, I want to build a rice that is better for you want to build more vegetables into rice, but it has to feel like a rice. It has to taste like the rice. It has to have the emotionality of rice. And so he built a, a like a rice substitute, extruded pea protein, I believe. It tastes amazing. And that's a great example of a product that the CPG product, very, very innovative. And how, how could we possibly get it into our chef network? And so it was the real grit of our sourcing team to figure out the right way and working with select distributors, figuring out if we need to be a distributor sometimes and, and just honestly like building that role for us. So this is a space that I think has a lot of room for innovation for us. And as we think about the bigger commitments that we're making to our customers, when we're talking about things like regenerative agriculture, and now I've said it, I like hinted right. at it before, but as we're saying it, you know, as a company, we want to be part of the regenerative agriculture movement. It's important to our customers. It's important to us. And the biggest challenge we have is how do we bring it into our supply chain? And for me, as a supply chain you know, person, that's like the best challenge because that's a challenge we can figure out. I believe all supply chain problems are fixable. And so it's a really exciting opportunity. Yeah, I suppose on the on the regen side, uh, one of the fascinating things once I started diving into that space a lot in the last year is that you know I've talked to regen farmers who have tens of thousands of acres of regenerative corn for 10, 15 years. It's been validated by the Norries and Indigo Ags of the world, and it's going into like conventional chicken feed because yeah. they basically it's like the the supply demand is so broken. And then you know you have the General Mills of the world say you know we're desperate for this regenerative ag like sourcing, but you know there are all these different again these different aspects of the supply chain that that break that link between supply and demand for these kind of things. And so, yeah, I suppose, are you seeing something similar? Yeah, I'm seeing the same breakage. I think there's literally the best minds in our space are thinking about this, though. I had a great conversation with Matt Wadiak from Blue Apron, and he's working on this, like, and he's so passionate about it. And I was like, we are at the forefront of a completely different food chain model, right? Blue Apron was very, very innovative, especially at the start. Now we see a thousand meal kits, but like at the start, Blue Apron was doing something very, very different. And it's a, like to see a mind like that focused on this as their mission and with their, their real passion makes me think that we will figure this out. It's, there's no blueprint for this of the, way we, of the way we do this, but it's about finding the right emergent companies, thought leaders who want to bring this together as, as really like tests and learning and things like that and being flexible enough to be able to do it. And that's why I love working in kind of like the startup space. And, you know, even though we make millions and millions of, you know, transactions and meals and things like that, you know, we still are a startup. We're we're always moving towards what is closer to the customer because what we hear from our customer is they care more. They care a lot about organics. They care a lot about regenerative agriculture. And I think today's consumer of food cares and they're being let down by the sources that they have. And if you think back to like the founding story that I told you about territory, it was a consumer that cared and they were let down by the food system. And so this is where I think we're about to see some transformation. I'm excited we're a part of it, a huge part of it. And this is also where I think there's going to be small companies and thought leaders that come out of nowhere that figure this out. And I'm excited to hear their ideas, potentially partner with them. I'm somebody who always takes a call. I don't know a better way to say that. that, That's how we met. (laughs) Yeah, it's important. I think you should always take a call. And I think it's always worth hearing like a new, and I don't want to say young entrepreneur because it's not an age thing, but a nascent stage idea entrepreneur. It's worth it to have those conversations because that's how you will find out, you know, the next trends that are coming in and where you should be looking. So 
So very excited and always excited to work more with chefs and restaurants because I think the other thing is, as we have worked with restaurants especially, who have restaurant chains and have their own supply side already built out, we've been having a lot of conversation about sustainable sourcing and what that means. And we've seen that they make the changes in their restaurant after we work with them. And then they're able to empower, like we empower them to touch so many more customers in that local space and change their local food community as well. So it's a really exciting shift for the whole market. And it's interesting on the, the consumer side, right? Because you mentioned at the beginning, you know, people didn't really have a, much of a concept of gluten-free or clean. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and even, you know, my home little village of Ireland, like you can get all these different options now in, in a way that mm-hmm. even two years ago were impossible. But, you know, as we have more and more of these, right, you know, again, even I'll talk to people in my kind of orbit, you know, and they know I'm working on these things. I'm like regenerative and organic and, you know, it can become quite confusing. And so mm-hmm. how do you think about, you know, ways that like, I suppose industry can, you know, streamline some of these labels in a way that the consumer can actually like understand <laughs> a bit better, you know? Okay. Well, Frank, our head of safety just like got gray hair. Um, <laughs> labeling, labeling, labeling. I have a lot of th- feelings, thoughts, feelings, and emotions on labels. First and foremost, I think that the USDA and and FDA are at the crosshairs of simultaneously having to moderate and understand the legacy of industrial food production and CPG manufacturing in the United States, which is like a huge thing, right? And then they also have to be looking at new and emergent technologies, businesses, supply sides, like trends, everything. I think they're probably, this is a guess, I don't know, but I'm going to say they're probably underfunded and under-resourced to do this giant task. And so what you see, I won't speak so much to like organic or things like that, because I think organic is one of the labels that actually does work well, but in the space of health, this is bananas. So I'm not sure I shared this with you in our last conversation, but I was an early adopter of keto diet. I started in like uh, 2014, 2015. Keto diet is a commercial diet, really only emerged in like 2017 into 2018. SlimFast launched their first keto product in uh, the fall of 2019. And SlimFast is a great kind of like marker of like general acceptance of a diet concept, right? So I'm an early adopter of keto. I got into it from um, Mark Hyman. And Mark Hyman doesn't really tout keto, but he it's a lot of the same tenants. And Mark Hyman became Dave Asprey. Dave Asprey touts keto. I got into keto. And ate a keto diet for a long time, strict keto. Now there's this commercial concept of keto. And I was walking through the grocery store the other day and there was a stick of butter that said keto friendly. And I was, that was the label. And I was like, I mean, that's not, not true. (laughs) But this is like when there's a bag of white rice and it says gluten-free. And it's like, there's just like, I saw broccoli that was labeled as gluten-free the other day. It's not, not true, but what are we trying to tell the customer and what are we trying to protect the consumer for? And when you add all these different labels that are not untrue, but also not true, it's just causes consumer confusion. And the bigger thing that we see is like keto friendly. And so that word friendly is dangerous, right? Like that, that friendly is dangerous, but it, but it's also like, what are we trying to say with these labels? And so I think the bigger thing is, I don't actually know if like keto friendly should be an outlawed label. I don't actually think that because I think there's a customer that's looking for keto friendly items and they, Mm -hmm. we have to define what that means. And what we see in our space is that we have on our offering, we have a, a keto menu. It is a strict keto. It is designed by dietitians. I will tell you, they hate it. They do not want to be offering this because they're like, this is not a sustainable diet. It's an epilepsy diet for a very specific purpose. But it's so trendy that we we really have to have it, right? But we have a very strict interpretation of it. 
we see our competitors, especially in the direct consumer space, putting keto on things that are not even close to keto. Like I saw a fruit and granola cup that was keto. Right. And I was like, absolutely no way. And just so anybody who doesn't know, a keto diet is a very heavy fat, a very low carb and moderate protein. The easiest way to think about it, if you want to Google, they'll give you macros based on your, your body weight. That's the correct macros that you should be eating. But generally, it's that uh, I think it's 80, 75 to 85% of your calories come from fat, essentially, which means that from a net carb perspective, you're eating probably like below 40 net carbs on a given day. There's no way granola could ever meet that in anybody. And so it's like a very interesting thing because labeling in the digital space is like the wild, wild west. Labeling in the grocery store is more controlled than they're using like friendly as a way to mitigate that. And I think we have two routes that we can go, three routes we can go. One, we can just like continue to let it go and put it like, it's very, very uh, buyer beware. Put it on the consumer to do the research. Two, you can put in a lot of regulation and say like, this is what keto needs to be. And, you, and that causes a lot of friction and it causes a lot of delay. I'm not advocating it because it's very hard to get those things stamped. It's very hard to get them approved. The speed of innovation will get slower. And, or the third thing is you can educate the customer. And I think like that's powerful in its own is to educate the customer and build knowledge of what organic means, what keto means, what regenerative agriculture means. And you can actually build brands around these things to educate the customer on why. So I was on the phone with Organifi, which is a great company. They do kind of like supplement powders and they have some of the cleanest sourcing I've ever seen. And when I was talking to the, I think I was talking to the head of R&D, she's wonderful. And I, I said, you know, what are you most proud of about the product? And she said, we are certified glyphosate free. And I was like, wow, that's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I was like, where's the information? Like, how do I find other products that are like this? And I think like, that's the really interesting thing is like, as a consumer that appeals to me, and I want to learn more and it's important and I want to understand what the certification means. I want to find other products that are there. And so I think this is where the thought leadership really can emerge. So, man, you opened up a can of worm with labels. Like we could talk about it forever. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's super interesting, right? Because like you basically moved from like a food pyramid, right? There was a one-stop shop mm -hmm. for everybody looks at the food pyramid and, you know, you're supposed to have your 25, you know, portions yes. of, of, of bread a day or whatever it was. Like 25 portions of bread and just like a little bit of fat. A little, a little, bit, a little bit of fat, barely, any, fruit, barely any fruit. And like we're moving to what would, at some point I would imagine is going to be everybody has an individualized diet that's completely yes. prepared for them, right? Yes. Maybe that's 10 years away, maybe it's 50 years away, maybe it's 1,000 years away, whatever it may yeah, be. This is like two months away. <laughs> two months away. It's coming. Two months it's coming. away. Well, this was for them, for everybody, right? And mm -hmm. I think you know when I th think about it, a lot of the labeling, it's like you know whether it's keto, whether you know even things like organic, it's like the word health is just like hovering mm -hmm. above all of it, right? Yeah. And it's and what I think a lot of uh, industries trying to kind of figure out is like how do if the average consumer is like saying these are just like are often thinking of these as things as synonym for healthy because for them they may be healthy, right? Because they are mm -hmm. I have adopted right. keto and it is. You know, whereas it might not be as "quote unquote" healthy for somebody who's adopted a different diet that works best for their for their own kind of uh, for their own bodies and so on. Um, and so, yeah, so I, like you know, it's basically it's like we're in the shifting period until we can get to pure individualized health, and then the labels don't mm -hmm. matter because it's just That's like right. you're, you're getting the macros that perfectly encapsulate what you need. Yes, but this isn't Gattaca. Like we're we've got to get there, right? Like I think like and why I say we're so close to personalized health is like. This space is a space that incredibly fascinating to me to say that personalized health, personalized nutrition is disconnected from the rest of the food chain is completely erroneous because 
there's new and emergent studies happening on the biomarkers of your body. There's incredible companies. There's a lot of venture capital flowing in this way. Some of my favorites that I'm not affiliated with at all and territory is not affiliated at all. Uh, Zoe Health is incredible. Levels, Cygnos, there's some new ones. ELO, which is precision nutrition. And what they're doing is in some cases they're using biomarkers. So they're using continuous glucose ports. They're using uh, fecal sampling. How could I leave out Viome? They were the early adopter in this space. I was one of their first customers, I believe. And the the laughing around the table, the conference room table was was high. And now oh everybody's doing it. Yeah. But what they use is like, uh, they use glucose testing. Sometimes it's ketone sticks. Lumen is a, is a breathalyzer, you know, all these different things. And what they're giving you is data about your body. And what they're giving you is information about your individualized response to certain inputs, right? And if your body is just a series of inputs that goes through a processing system, this is basically you getting the output. You get the little printout that says, this is how your body processes this thing. But that's only half of the equation. And what's interesting to me, I was sitting on a future food panel just a couple of months ago talking about this very thing, is that we're getting really good at funding and understanding the first half of the equation. But what we aren't great at is making the connection to the second half of the equation, which is, okay, how, right? And so if you eat something and you go through like an A-B test and it says like you have an insulin spike related to rice, okay, you can remove rice out of your diet. That's like kind of simple, but it's a one-off. If it's, if it's a multivariate where it's like a whole panel of things that work for you, that don't work for you, and it's phosphorus and it's potassium and it's all these things, how do you actually as a human manage that? You could find someone to write you a cookbook of all the things that are okay for you. You could ignore a portion of it and say, I'm going to just have some optimized health for that. And say, I'm going to focus on like the maybe two or three big things, or you can find a service like territory where you can get that very, very precise diet. I don't like to use the word diet and territory in the same, same word, because that's not what we do. But we have a range of different products, a range of different meals that are against a lot of these different vectors. And so what you can do is you can choose the things that are right for you. You can sort, you can filter, you can set it up, you can give us micronutrients, macronutrients, and you can make those changes. Um, and we make it crazy easy because all you have to do is then eat the food. And I think first. like, <laughs> exactly. And, and I think what's amazing to me is like the first half of the equation, it always goes to a place of groceries especially in the world of like food as medicine. And when you're talking less about like commercial biomarkers and more about like diabetes and heart disease and things like that. And the solution is always, well, just like cook your food. Listen, not everyone has time, interest or understanding of how to cook their food or capability to cook their food. And so it's a really interesting thing because if you want to make sustainable changes in your health, if you want to live a better life, um, if you want to get you know, control over your, mod your metabolic health, like forget lose weight, it's about your metabolism, your metabolic health, then finding the right way to eat for you is critical. And we are so lucky because we're at this moment where all this is becoming available to both consumers and in the health and well, like the medical space. And now I'm lucky because now I'm like, what are we going to do with it? How do we make it crazy easy? And how do we build this at scale? And that's like the thing I'm most excited for to change the way people eat that will change the way they live. Right, because we have these ubiquitous kind of sensors, like, you know, a lot of people are wearing some sort of, you know, Apple Watch or, or, or Fitbit or something, yeah. connecting that way. And, and so we're actually getting the feedback. It's not just like how we feel. It's like, oh, I feel you know, bloated this afternoon because I ate something. It's like, actually, there's some data that can go be ported elsewhere to make better decisions. Yes. And I think what's so funny about food is food is so intimate and food is so fragile from like a consumer psyche perspective. Let's take a different parable. Let's talk about whoop. 
Whoop is an, an amazing, you know, wearable. It measures your sleep. It measures your recovery. And what they did was they started to build individualized personal algorithms for people and saying, we're going to measure your restfulness and your recovery. And then we're going to help you make tiny changes in your life to feel better. And what they did was they did it at scale. And people were like, oh my God, I feel better. They even found that they could mitigate, um, they could identify COVID symptoms in advance and start mitigating COVID impact on people's bodies through rest and through the personalized algorithm that they built. That is incredible work. Hats off to the Whoop team. No one questions that. And no one has like a believability gap because I think everyone's like, yeah, if I get more rest, I'll feel better. But when you're starting to talk about food, because it's so personal and because of the food pyramid that you're talking about and like the generations of just like understanding of how the body works. If you say to somebody, say to all Americans, if you gave up gluten, sugar, dairy, and canola oil, you would live till 105. 75% of the population would say, I don't believe you. Right. And, and so it's really interesting because we have a bigger hill to climb in food than, than in other wearables. We have the right technology. We have the right hardware. We have the right, you know, software, data science and things like that. And I think the thing that's really going to be the big driver is these micro changes. Because when you ask people to completely change who they are, they will not do it. And you have to be able to show the results, whatever those results are to the customer in a micro way where they're not asking them to change too much of their life and you're making it very, very small and very, very easy for them to do it. And outside of like a huge, you know, shocking event in someone's life, there's not something, especially for adults, that's willing, that will make them change their behavior. Um, so you've got to find a way to like slide in to the behaviors they have and slowly sure. help them make those habits. How do you think about how, you know, we've had this obviously huge kind of social shift in the last 12 months during COVID or 15 months, whatever mm-hmm. we're at now. And, you know, people said that we're, you know, everyone's going to be all white collar, we work from home indefinitely <laughs> and all this kind of thing. And you already see a lot of companies already like kind of reneging on that, right? And, and, and try to split it or, you know, 80% net needs to be back in the office and so on. And so I think, you know, some of the pronouncements of, that I probably made myself June 2020 might be somewhat changing as we actually kind of start to reopen in the US at least. So how do you think that, you know, as was eating habits, meal habits, how, you know, it affects territory, I guess, directly, how those mm-hmm. will, uh, you know, change? What, what did COVID, I guess, speed up and what I suppose will kind of go back to some, some version of normal? Yeah. So first and foremost... I'm so excited to go back to restaurants, aren't oh, you? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't wait to go back to restaurants. So and like, you should always look to your insides and like pressure test your assumptions. So listen, people are going to go back to restaurants, but it's because of two things. It's because we've been inside for a long time, but humans are communal animals. We want to be with other people. We want to have shared experiences, right? And so I think like, will we move away from shared experiences? Thank God, no. Like, I think that's been the hardest part of 2020 is the isolation and the fact that, you know, you couldn't see family and you couldn't go out to dinner. And I think that's why people are actually, there's, you know, I just read something. I think only 36% of American white collar workers want to go back into the office, which is interesting. So we did a quick pulse check, like just with our company also, and we're remote first. So we've always been remote, even before the pandemic. But what people want is this space to congregate when they need to and when they want to. And I think that's actually going to be the more powerful thing is like, how does the real estate landscape of office space change to empower that congregation in an ad hoc manner versus asking companies to take on the overhead of an office that's only used two to four times a week? Because the other thing that I read really interestingly is that 50% of American white collar workers are considering just leaving their job. Right. It's a high amount of friction right now. People are tired. They've been working at companies, you know, and they're starting to say, you know, I'll leave if I can't work from home. And so in a very tight job market, 
I think there's some interesting choices being made from large companies saying everyone has to go back into work, especially in light of like the major tax shifts that are happening, especially in New York City as well. I think this is about to be a big churn. In terms of food consumption, I think people will go back to restaurants, yes, but the thing I saw when I worked in uh, fashion retailing, uh, which was like in the 2013 to 2017 timeframe, so a really interesting time, was that once the consumer adopts e-commerce buying patterns, they don't go back. Because what e-commerce is, is a convenience enablement that allows the customer to get exactly what they want. And what the store became, and I worked for Gap Inc., which is like arguably one of the best retailers in the entire world, an incredible company, amazing mission, vision, values, like everything. What the customer wanted out of that evolved need state was once e-commerce became a big part of their life, they wanted the store to be more like a showroom. And they wanted it to be more like experiential with a micro inventory store in the back that they could pull from if they needed something ad hoc. And I think it's very interesting to think about that in the terms of food, because in COVID, we had a seismic shift in buying patterns. Before COVID, 2 to 4% of American consumers were purchasing food through direct-to-consumer. That was Instacart, Blue Apron, us, everybody. In the pandemic, it spiked to 10 to 12%, and it's holding, and it's staying there. And so I believe people will go back to restaurants for the experience, but do I think that there will be a seismic shift going back to the grocery store to, to pick up the things that you must have? I actually don't. I think that's where new and innovative models in grocery, Instacart, in the world of convenience, Foxtrot, God knows there's a thousand platforms, you know, like Amazon Fresh, GoPuff. There's a, a thousand platforms out there now in the world of grocery. I think now the customer understands that they can access at a low cost digital enablement to get exactly what they want when they want it. So they'll reserve the times that they go back for the more experiential thing. So I think the grocery store is going to fundamentally change. I think that that plus like where public health goes in terms of sampling and, and things like that is very interesting. I think that restaurants will go back, but I think the restaurant industry has changed forever. There's a whole generation of colonial entrepreneurs that will not go into being restaurateurs because they watched their colleagues and friends get laid off or not have their businesses start or their family businesses have gone out of business. And so my bigger thing is what happens to the, those minds? And do we just lose the knowledge of that generation? Or is there another place for it to go, which is really interesting? And I think restaurants as businesses will think differently about the way their P&L needs to work because now they've been exposed. And platforms like Seamless, Uber Eats, things like that, they're not meant to be the total part of a restaurant's business. They're just not. They interrupt service. They don't have the same margin, obviously. They don't have any customer data pass back. Like it's a very, very chaotic relationship with the customer. And so what I think is the upshot of the very, very hard year for restaurants during the pandemic is that now restaurants know they have to be multi-business channel businesses and they're more open to new and innovative businesses that work alongside them. And a lot of them have been burned so badly by the delivery platforms that when we go to them and we say, hey, we're territory, we're building a curated marketplace of restaurants, we serve a healthy customer, this is how we do it, this is the data flow, this is how we build the relationship. They're like, this is amazing. Because what we've thought about and the, the work that we put in as a team is what is our responsibility as a company to building relationships that work with our culinary partners? They are culinary partners. They're not, we're not a platform where anyone can sign up. Um, they're real partners that we have real relationships with. So we understand how the unit economics work on both sides of the house so that we're able to give them a business line that provides our customer with 
the best product, but also provides the businesses that we touch with a sustainable business. Um, and really thinking about our social responsibility and those local economies with those partners. So that was a lot, but I would say 2020, it shifted everything for us, but I find the bright in all of it and am excited for how this changes the way we think about 2021 and beyond. Yeah, I think you know the resiliency of uh, something like a you know New York City's restaurant scene or any large city's yeah. restaurant scene is like often an example of um, you know what uh, Nassim Taleb calls like an anti-fragile system, right? Because mm-hmm. any individual restaurant could go out of business, but like the restaurant industry is incredibly robust because you have so much constant innovation. Trying, you have different yeah. cuisines, you have different approaches, and all this kind of thing. So absolutely, I you know echo a lot of things you say there. But yeah, you know, I suppose before we kind of finish up, you know, when yeah. I look at your kind of history. You mentioned the Gap. You're you're at uh, you're at Deloitte and all this kind of thing, you know, looking back and now you're obviously running this, you know, amazing startup, just had a huge success with the round and it's kind of, you know, scaling at the moment. You know, if you were to, I suppose, speak to, uh, you know, the next kind of uh, analog of you, right, who's, uh, I guess, coming out of college right now, you know, I suppose, what kind of advice would you give them for, oh. you know, based on your career? I mean, I would say never be satisfied and keep moving. I think like the hardest thing that I see for myself when I look back at my younger versions of myself and then I see around my like cohort, the people I know, and even like our employees is always find the thing that you're passionate about because time is the one thing you can't buy more of, right? And why do we work? We work to make money. Why do we make money? So we can buy the things that we need in life so we can live a good life, right? Those are why you, that's like the work idea. But time is this limited thing you can't get more of. Unless you eat territory every single day and then you'll live forever. Yeah. That's not a trademark and don't hold me to it, but I want you to think that. But time is the only thing you can't get more of. And when you're young, especially, your time is so valuable and you're in this like knowledge acquisition stage. And for me, I always, you mentioned my background, but I spent six years with Deloitte Consulting. It's like an absolutely great place to start my career. I was in the technology practice. I loved it. Loved the people. Had a great career there. I could have stayed for 21 years, for 30 years, but I kept hitting this place where I had this itch in my stomach that I was like, I'm just not learning. Like, I know what I need to do to be successful. And, and what is success? Like, it's moving up through the corporate ladder. It's making a lot of money. But like, is that going to be success to me or not? And so every time I've hit that itch in my career, when I, I just feel like I'm not learning anymore, and, and it's not that I don't love the people and there's not more to learn. It's like, I've kind of like tapped out on what I want for me to get out of that experience. I start looking to the next thing. So I spent six years with Deloitte Consulting. I spent three years with The Gap. I did, I was directed product operations for the um, international franchise businesses. So the businesses that are not wholly owned by Gap Inc. was at the time when e-commerce and um, like direct-to-consumer retail was really up and coming. And also this idea of how do you be more consumer-driven and data-driven in design at scale. What an incredible place to do that. What an incredible place to sit at because Gap is like this legacy 1969 retailer. Like they're not positioned to fight Everlane, right? They're not positioned for it. And so instead of being on like the fast growing side, I was on like the, how do we change this thing side? And I learned so much in those years and moved around quite a bit when I was there to kind of get that knowledge. And then as I was kind of formulating my hypothesis on like data-driven innovation and how you could use customer insights to drive product that was higher value to the customer, charge a price for it that wasn't discounted and how much value could that create throughout the chain? I started to look around and say, okay, now that I've learned this, what do I want to learn next? What's missing from like my toolkit? Right. I went over to AB InBev in ZX Ventures, uh, the venture capital and innovation arm, and had an incredible two years with AB InBev and what an amazing place ZX is. Like it's the coolest, funnest, weirdest place that I have ever been. And any ZX alum will just like smile when I say that because it's so true. 
But what I learned from that experience was building on this hypothesis of consumer-led design and brand equity, what can you build with brand equity and how do you build real products for consumers that they love, leverage a brand and then, and then scale quickly, quite frankly, like, can you actually scale quickly? And then after those experiences, I built the business really successfully in, in two years, really fast. Again, could have had an amazing career at AB InBev, could have had an amazing career at Gap, all these places. And I kind of said, you know, do I want to be here for the next 15 years? And am I willing to make that commitment? And it's a commitment on both sides. I have to make it, they have to make it. And I said, you know, the thing for me is I want to take these learnings and I want to soothe that entrepreneurial itch that I have in my stomach and I want to apply them and I want to see if it works. And so I found Territory and they're at this very, very interesting critical stage of growth. They had just taken their Series A in, it was a little bit after the Series A, like post growth. And, you know, the business was changing really dramatically. They had launched a direct to consumer business. And from a KPI's perspective, they were flying a little bit blind because they just didn't have the muscle memory of a direct to consumer business. I came in with strong KPI muscle memory, how to scale a DTC business, and then a super passion for both the product, the community, and the company. I love every employee of the company in a weird and amazing way. And came in and really just said, like, this is my chance to like soothe that itch and continue to grow my own skill set. And every single day at Territory, I learned something new. Every single day. And so I think the biggest thing is like to leave you with is if you are a entrepreneur, if you're coming up in this world and you're starting to think like, I'm not sure if I should be in the position I'm in. Like you're sitting at the desk, you're a social media manager at some company or you're a software engineer. You're like, I'm not sure I should be here. Then you probably shouldn't be. And it's your responsibility to like look in the mirror and say why, right? Because like, sure. I'm it's not encouraging people to, right, yeah. to jump ship like immediately, but like look in the mirror and say like, why? And then ask yourself the question, like, are you going to be happy here? And like, you're responsible for your own happiness. No one else is going to make you happy. And then what can you do to change your situation? Because like as an entrepreneur, as a human, it's your responsibility to change your situation and have those honest conversations with yourself. It's very easy for me to say it, you know, 15 plus years into my career. But I will tell you when I was 22, 24, 26, 30, like all these things, it was so hard. And I think like that's the best piece of advice is like, you need that person who's going to be like, shake you and be like, you got to change your situation. So I'm, I'm shaking people through this podcast. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, it's something uh, I actually talk to my wife about every, every, you know, New Year's resolution, like, and we kind of mm -hmm. you know, look back on the year and the, the thing that basically consistently, especially in, in the last five, 10 years, like should have taken a bigger risk. And I, I take tons of mm -hmm. risks like uh, every year. And it's like, should have still taken more. That's um, right. And, you know, you know, risk taking, uh, and again, I'm not saying, you know, like, like skydiving without a parachute type things, <laughs> you know, but like, yeah. you know, make that extra phone call, you know, make that extra connection, right. make, jump, jump, you know, jump to a different department, even if you're not ready to kind of move on to something that's else right. um, and just constantly kind of looking around. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think that's absolutely some great points. Um, but, uh, you know, before we finish, is there anything I should have asked you about Ellis, but the not? I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of things. We talked about personalized nutrition. We talked about health. We talked about commercial vectors, talked about supply chain. I think we covered, we covered it all. I think my, my secret Hazinga for you was going to be on uh, personalization, but we talked about it so in deeply. So no, I think this was great. And I think, you know, the thing I would leave your listeners with is that we are at the forefront of a different world of entrepreneurship and innovation. And it's an incredible opportunity. There's an incredible amount of capital that's flowing through the, this world right now. And I think the hardest thing as an entrepreneur is to believe in your dream enough to take that risk. And so you have to take it because if you don't do it, nobody else will. 
And it's like very powerful, especially in the space around sustainability. It's important that we take those risks. So I hope that this inspires people to get up and get moving on their ideas. Absolutely. That's great. Uh, thank you, Alice. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me. And it has been wonderful. And then also for your listeners, we would love to give $75 off of their first territory orders, over three orders using the code VEGOUT, V-E-G-O-U-T. We've got a lot of new plant-based meals in the menu right now. So very happy to have um, all your listeners have access to it. Looking forward to that. And I'll add it to the show notes. Excellent. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. I cannot express how appreciated it is. And we'll be back next week with another episode.